Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and death that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. John Wadowitz strutted outside the bank with a smile on his face. He hardly seemed to notice the team of police officers watching his every move, weapons drawn. He strolled over to the shuttle they'd called for him and inspected it, carefully opening the door and patting down the seats. It looked clean. He turned to the crowd of spectators and waved like he was on stage. Whether they cheered or hurled insults, it was all the same to him. No such thing as bad attention. Before he walked back up the steps of the bank, John's gaze landed on a group of men standing among the crowd. There was something off about them. It looked as if they were trying too hard to blend in. John wasn't one to ignore his instincts. He pointed at the men and ordered them to fall back and join the police. He didn't want any undercover cops trying to sneak up on him. After a moment of hesitation, they nodded and backed away. John grinned. He was in total control. Finally, the dog would have his day. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed the tumultuous relationship between 27-year-old John Wadowitz and 26-year-old Liz Eden. After being tormented for months by John, who refused to understand her gender identity, Liz was driven to the end of her rope and was hospitalized. John feared she would be permanently confined to a psych ward and recruited two associates to help bust her out. This week, we'll detail the poorly planned bank robbery John organized to fund the endeavor in August 1972. We'll also discuss the aftermath of the crime and how that fateful afternoon shaped John's identity for the rest of his life. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? 
Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On August 22nd, 1972, John Wadowitz set out to rob a bank. He had no plan, no experience, and no specific target in mind. Armed with nothing but a few guns and boundless confidence, he and two comrades, Sal Natrali and Bobby Westenberg, dove headlong into the unknown. But when the moment of truth finally came, Bobby got cold feet and fled. Undermanned, but determined to finish what they started, John and Sal threw caution to the wind. That afternoon, they drew their weapons in the lobby of a Chase Manhattan bank and demanded everyone freeze. There was no turning back. In an instant, John seized control of the room, waving his gun frantically between random bank employees. The manager, seven female tellers, and one overmatched security guard stopped cold. Adrenaline rushed through John's veins. All eyes were on him, and he felt electric. Sal pointed his pistol at the manager, Robert Barrett, while John barked orders. Everyone was to remain quiet. If they all behaved, there would be no problems. They just wanted money. Robert remained exceptionally calm, even with a gun to his head, and instructed his staff to do as the men said. John scrambled to the registers and slammed an empty briefcase onto the counter. He threw open the drawers, eyes wide with excitement. Countless stacks of neatly organized bills laid before him, all for the taking. Just a few hours ago, he and Sal had sat in a vacant theater watching The Godfather for inspiration. And now here he was, seizing his own fortune, just like Michael Corleone. A surge of pride rushed through him. He felt invincible. Before I continue with John's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In a 2018 study at the University of Chicago, researchers Michael Cardis and Ed O'Brien proposed that simply watching footage of someone performing a skill can give viewers a false sense of confidence. Without any prior experience or practice, they feel like they can do just as well as a professional on screen. John's overinflated ego convinced him that he could pull off a heist like a seasoned mobster without any planning. Blinded by hubris, he recklessly tried to imitate a fictional kingpin. At first, it seemed to be working. In a matter of minutes, John secured close to $38,000 in cash and another $175,000 in traveler's checks. Grinning ear to ear, he gave the employees their final orders. 
He told the staff they would be locked inside the vault while he and Sal escaped. Once the two of them were home free, he would personally call the police to rescue them. If there was no funny business, they'd all be home for dinner. But in the middle of John's speech, the manager's desk phone rang. Not wanting to raise suspicions, John told Robert to pick it up and act casual. With Sal's gun still trained on the back of his head, Robert answered. Human Resources was on the other end of the line, calling about a routine transfer of one of Robert's tellers. It was a mundane procedure and HR expected a brief and formulaic approval. But when the conversation began, they could sense something was off. Robert was fully aware that any wrong move could result in a bullet to the brain. Still, he couldn't pass up a chance for help. Somehow, he needed to pique his coworkers' suspicions without the robbers noticing. Fortunately, HR gave him a perfect opportunity. When asked to approve the teller's transfer, Robert responded cheerily that he was looking forward to working with her at his current branch. Confused, HR asked if something was wrong. Robert replied, very much so and have a nice day, then hung up. HR immediately phoned security. Over the next couple of minutes, John and Sal shepherded the employees toward the vault. It wasn't until John peeked out the window that he realized how much trouble they were in. Outside, an army of police were already surrounding the bank. They were in the windows across the street, on the fire escapes and around the corners. Everywhere he looked, John saw blue uniforms staring back at him, guns drawn. He and Sal quickly pivoted. They locked the doors, readied their guns and barricaded themselves inside. The standoff had begun. John returned to the huddled bank employees and told them there was a change of plans. They were hostages now. Until he and Sal could come up with an exit strategy, they all had to sit tight. This was not the situation John had imagined that morning. He didn't like the idea of taking captives, but now that the police were there, they were the only things keeping him and Sal alive. As everyone else outside waited for the robbers to make the first move, an eager journalist took a proactive approach. Bob Capstetter, a reporter for the Daily News, called the bank shortly after 5 p.m. just to see if anyone would answer. To his surprise, John picked up the phone. Bob couldn't believe how talkative he was. He scribbled notes as fast as he could, but knew he could only get so much information over the phone. After a brief conversation, Bob hopped in a car and rushed to the crime scene to get an in-person interview. John wiped the sweat from his brow as Sal paced back and forth, rifle clenched tightly in his hands. John patted him on the back and shuffled to the front door. Along the way, he stole a glance outside, desperately searching for a weak point in the police barricade. There wasn't one. He had seen enough movies to know how the situation was likely to end. He had little trust in authority figures and assumed they were just looking for the first opportunity to shoot him and Sal dead. 
he decided his best chance to escape would be to get the support of the public. He wasn't some greedy criminal. He needed people to know why he was doing this. He needed to talk to that reporter. Suddenly, as if John had willed him into existence, Bob Capstetter appeared and flashed his credentials through the glass. John inched open the door. Though he'd been talkative in the heat of the moment on the phone, suddenly he didn't know where to start. After a moment of hesitation, Bob asked how everything was going. John didn't even turn to look at him. How do you think? He answered sarcastically. Bob couldn't help but chuckle. The ice was broken, and for the first time in hours, John felt a small sense of relief. Finally, someone was listening. He knew how to tell a story. But shortly after the interview, Sal pulled John aside and gave him a heavy dose of reality. They were in way over their heads. Sal had no idea what to do and told John it was up to him to figure it out. John nodded. It was his fault Sal was dragged into this. Now was the time to make a move and he wasn't going to waste it. In a flash of inspiration, he came up with an exit strategy, albeit a ridiculous one. First, he would demand the police free Liz Eden and bring her to the bank. Next, he would request a fully fueled plane that all three of them could use to escape to a foreign country. Once they were safely across the border, he'd use his share of the money to finally get Liz her gender confirmation surgery. Everyone would be happy, and by tomorrow, their problems would be solved. John understood it was a long shot, but even if the plan failed, it still made him sound like a hero. No one in history had ever gone so far for love. At the very least, people would remember the heist forever. And if there was one thing John Wadowitz craved, it was attention. Just a few minutes later, he was interviewed on a live radio broadcast. With the whole world listening, John announced his terms, proclaimed he was gay, and started building his legend. He then blatantly misgendered Liz, called her by her dead name, and demanded she be released from the hospital. It was unlike anything people had ever heard. Back in her padded room, Liz had no idea she was about to be thrust into the spotlight. John didn't bother to consider how she would feel. He was out to shock the world, and he succeeded. Coming up, John's plan for a happily ever after crashes to earth, and the authorities' patience runs thin. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. Discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. 
Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On August 22, 1972, 27-year-old John Wadowitz and 19-year-old Sal Natrali attempted to rob a Brooklyn branch of the Chase Manhattan Bank. They were quickly backed into a corner, but John devised an absurd plan to escape. The first step was to pour his heart out on live radio. John proudly professed his sexuality for the world to hear. During the interview, he spoke about his former lover, Liz Eden, and their relationship. He claimed that he'd robbed the bank to fund her gender confirmation surgery. It was a story of a lifetime. In an instant, the robbery went from remarkable to truly one of a kind. The media scrambled to find information on Liz and photos of her and John's wedding were broadcast nationwide. As the news spread, public opinion started to shift. John insisted that his crime was motivated by love rather than greed. The heist was framed as a man's fight for his spouse against all odds. John's hero fantasy took shape as interested spectators gathered outside the bank and rallied behind his cause. People wanted to believe that the robbery represented the little guy struggling against an apathetic system. John wasn't stealing from people, he was stealing from an institution. The big banks were rich and John was a love-struck Robin Hood, but not everyone bought the romance. Homophobia and intolerance were commonplace, and many people took issue with he and Liz's relationship as well as her gender identity. Some onlookers called their marriage obscene and repeatedly heckled John throughout the night. According to him, one official with a bullhorn used a slur to intimidate him from across the street. In response, John threatened him in front of everyone and challenged him to a fight. He taunted the man over and over, knowing he would never accept considering Sal was still inside with the hostages. Eventually, the man backed down. John had made a statement. He was the one in control. But it grew increasingly difficult to keep a lid on the situation as the hours dragged on. The TV coverage was so ubiquitous that footage of President Richard Nixon's speech at the Republican National Convention was cut short to report on the bank robbery. Whether you loved him or hated him, all eyes were on John Wadowitz. Inside the bank, 
John did his best to keep his hostages composed. He knew he needed their cooperation first and foremost. In an effort to raise morale, he allowed everyone to call their loved ones as much as they liked. They were also given permission to roam the bank and talk freely amongst themselves. As the crisis went on, a strange camaraderie formed between the captors and the hostages. They understood that John and Sal were just as scared as them and even started to sympathize with them. John's small acts of kindness somehow made him more human. The bond went both ways. John was unwilling to surrender, but felt a genuine responsibility to keep the hostages safe. So, when the police called into the bank to get negotiations started, John said he was willing to talk. But before he would do anything further, he demanded to see Liz Eden. Isolated in her hospital room, Liz felt the walls closing in on her. She was a prisoner, confined to a psychiatric ward simply for wanting to live as herself. John had disappeared almost two days earlier and she hadn't heard from him since. When the police arrived and explained what he'd done, she was more disappointed than surprised. Only John Wadowitz would do something so reckless. She barely had time to process the situation, however, before authorities escorted her to a squad car. John wanted to see her and they insisted she comply. In nothing more than a loose hospital gown and slippers, she was dragged to Brooklyn, hopelessly unprepared for the scrutiny she was about to face. From the minute she arrived at the crime scene, Liz was barraged with unwanted attention. Reporters barked at her as a flurry of disorienting camera flashes went off in her face. They pressured her for private information and publicly aired her dirty laundry. Pummeled by the sudden spotlight, it took all of Liz's effort just to stay on her feet. Thanks to John, her entire life had been dissected all over the news, and now the police expected her to talk to him. What they didn't realize before they dragged her to the bank was that Liz was far too terrified to see John face to face. While he told the world he was a romantic hero, John had conveniently left out the fact that he had stalked and tormented Liz for months. His behavior had become erratic and Liz was paranoid that he might kill her if given the chance. The officers begged her to speak with him directly, but Liz refused. John would have to settle for a phone call. While the details of their conversation aren't known, Liz said that John opened up to her with an unusual candidness. According to her, he was scared and actually wanted to give himself up. But he was convinced something might happen to the other hostages if he came out alone. He believed Sal was unstable and might kill the employees if left unsupervised. Though John seemed genuinely worried, it was impossible to take him at his word. Liz had fallen for his lies before. For all she knew, John was making up an excuse to appear more heroic. All too familiar with his lust for attention, she couldn't help but feel like his emotional vulnerability was just another act. In 2018, 
Therapist and relationship expert Darlene Lancer wrote an article exploring the ways egotistical individuals manipulate others. She stated that these individuals use lies, exaggerations, and blame-shifting to get what they want. By vilifying Sal, it's possible John was using him as a scapegoat. It was no secret he wanted Liz by his side. She would have helped him further cement his legacy as a noble thief, and her presence would have possibly discouraged police from taking violent action. Of course, he completely disregarded the fact that Liz would be in far greater danger if she joined him inside. He wasn't trying to save her. He was using her to save himself. To that end, John begged to see Liz in person, but she said she couldn't handle it. He swore that the reason he robbed the bank was to get money for her procedure. He promised they could fly away together and be happy. All she had to do was say yes, but Liz wouldn't budge. He had hurt her too many times before. Even so, she didn't want to see John harmed. She pleaded with him to surrender, but he couldn't be moved. At that point, there was nothing left to discuss. Liz wasn't coming in, and John wasn't leaving. Alone in the conference room, John stared at the phone in disbelief. He'd waited for hours for Liz to show up, and now she wouldn't even see him. She had some nerve. He paced back and forth, unsure of what to do next. It was borderline humiliating. Liz was practically famous thanks to him. The least she could do was show a little gratitude. He stopped and took a breath. John Wadowitz never wallowed for long. He wasn't about to let her make him feel bad. He wouldn't give her the satisfaction. It was a shame she didn't want to run away with them, but he wasn't going to lose sleep over it. If she didn't want his help, then that was her problem. He didn't need her anymore. Their conversation, like most of John's day, had not gone as planned. Knowing he could no longer rely on Liz for support, John turned back to the media. He thought that by keeping them on his side, the authorities would be less likely to resort to violence to end the crisis. Fear of public backlash was the one thing that could keep him alive. While John Starr rose, Sal was left to do the dirty work of controlling the hostages. Though both of their lives were at stake, he was barely involved in the planning for their getaway. Having spent time in prison before, Sal was too skittish to speak to the police and allow John to call the shots. He just hoped his trust wasn't misplaced. By nightfall, negotiations between John and the police were established. In exchange for the safe release of the hostages, John asked for an escort to John F. Kennedy Airport, along with a plane to get him and Sal out of the country. He planned to take the hostages along and release one at each stage of the journey. But even with lives on the line, the FBI was hesitant to give in to his demands. They couldn't just let him walk away and settled for stalling as much as they could in the hope that he'd give up before they did. 
the wait wasn't as easy as they'd expected. Outside of the building, officers were restless. They were tired of John's publicity. For hours, he'd repeatedly taunted them from afar, knowing they wouldn't make a move as long as he stuck close to the captives. If they were going to regain control of the situation, law enforcement needed to change tactics. It was time to go on the offensive. In an effort to cut John's media exposure short, the bank's phone lines were cut. All communication in and out was terminated. No more interviews, no more calls to family members. The police wanted the thieves to feel as isolated as possible. John was irate. He'd worked hard to put the hostages at ease, but now they were unable to talk to their loved ones. Their most valuable privilege had been taken away. The air conditioning was next to go. Within minutes, the atmosphere became stale and humid. Clearly, the police were tired of waiting. Still, his captives didn't blame John. The authorities' attempt to break their morale had failed. If anything, it only made the hostages angrier with the police. John battled through negotiations on and off for hours. At around 2 a.m., he got the FBI to send some pizzas over as a gesture of goodwill. When the food arrived, Shirley Ball, one of the bank tellers, went to pick it up. John took position near the doors while Shirley stepped into the street for the first time in almost 10 hours. As she collected the boxes, she heard her husband's voice break through the crowd. The two of them locked eyes, and Shirley saw the relief wash over his face. He was so close she could almost feel his embrace. Freedom was just a few yards away. For all she knew, this was her one chance to escape. Though tempted, Shirley wouldn't abandon her fellow hostages. Instead, she took the opportunity to speak her mind. Fed up with law enforcement's inaction, Shirley scolded the FBI agents for not giving John what he wanted. The police were gambling with her life and Shirley was sick of it. She insisted they comply with John's demands. With that, she promptly turned and followed John back inside the bank. It would be another hour before FBI negotiators cracked. Finally, at 3 a.m., they conceded. A shuttle was chartered to escort John, Sal, and most of the hostages to JFK Airport. From there, they would board a jet and escape the country. In exchange, one hostage would be released at the bank and two more at the airport. The rest would be let go once John and Sal were safely overseas. After 12 grueling hours, John and Sal saw the light at the end of the tunnel. By tomorrow, they would be in a tropical paradise with their pockets full of cash. Hopelessly optimistic, the two men bought the FBI's lie, hook, line, and sinker. Up next, John and Sal go to the airport. Now, back to the story. By the early morning hours of August 23, 1972, 
Bank robbers John Wadowitz and Sal Natrelli had been in a standoff with New York City police for over 12 hours. Their hostages were desperate for freedom, and at 3 a.m., negotiators finally gave in to John's outrageous demands. John stood proudly in front of his captives and shared the good news. They let out a collective sigh of relief. It was almost over, just like John had promised. As part of the agreement, one of them would be released before the trip to the airport. And as usual, John wanted to have some fun with the decision. As they waited for the airport limo to arrive, they held an impromptu lottery with some bank slips. Josephine Titino, one of the younger, more excitable tellers, hollered as she drew the winner. A half hour later, their limousine arrived. John stepped outside to inspect the transport first. A thorough investigation of the vehicle came up empty. Satisfied there were no traps or hidden devices, John turned his attention to the crowd, where a group of men caught his attention. A mass of spectators had lingered outside during the night, but these people looked different. John marched over and demanded the men get to the other side of the street with the rest of the cops. They skulked back to their unit in disbelief. John had sniffed them out like a bloodhound. He strutted back inside, utterly fearless. He was sure he had the police on the ropes. John gave the hostages their final marching orders, then handed the suitcase full of money to bank manager Robert Barrett. With the shotgun brandished over his shoulder, John took position at the front of the pack. It had been 14 long hours since he'd first walked into the bank. Just a few more to go, and then they'd be free. John exited first, while Sal brought up the rear, surrounded by a human shield of hostages. He wasn't as comfortable exposing himself to the police as John was. Step by tedious step, the entourage crept their way to the limo. The remaining crowd watched with bated breath as the hostages inched their way forward. Tension filled the air. Though the car was parked just a few yards away, the journey felt like a marathon. At last, John opened the doors and scurried inside. He and Sal took two of the middle seats, flanked on either side by hostages. As they nestled in, Sal took aim at the back of the driver's head, ready to fire at a moment's notice. Once John gave the all clear, they departed for the airport. John buzzed with anticipation as their caravan sped down the empty highway. He wrapped his arms around his shotgun like a security blanket. Sal sat rigidly in front of him, eyes firmly planted on the FBI agent's neck. The poor kid looked terrified, but John had enough confidence for the both of them. It was their lucky day. He could feel it. Shortly after 5 a.m., the lights of JFK Airport appeared on the horizon. The car entered a private runway, flanked by a procession of squad cars. A legion of civilians brought up the rear, eager to watch the thrilling conclusion of the heist. The limo came to a stop on the dark airstrip. 
There was no plane in sight, but the driver assured them it would arrive soon. Had he not been so friendly and accommodating throughout their ride, John's suspicions might have been raised. But he was too excited to worry and decided to take the driver's word. Now on the verge of freedom, John was practically giddy. He chatted with the driver for several more minutes. His calming banter once again helped put the rest of the hostages at ease. John even suggested they all head inside the airport for some food while they waited. To his surprise, the agent considered it but said he'd have to check with his supervisors first. John happily let him leave the limo without another thought. It was exactly the opportunity the FBI had been waiting for. The driver returned to his team to discuss strategy. He had John's full trust and urged an immediate strike. His commanding officer agreed. Under the veil of sirens and roaring airplanes, the men devised a plan. The driver returned to the car accompanied by two other officers. John and Sal nervously watched them approach. The driver got back in the front seat as his men took position around the car. Just as John was about to object, the plane rolled into view. It was more beautiful than he could have imagined. It was the perfect distraction. The driver locked eyes with another officer. As they had rehearsed, he asked if there would be food on the plane. That was the code word. When the other agent replied yes, everyone tensed up. It was now or never. In a smooth motion, the driver grabbed a concealed gun from under the floorboard. He spun in his seat, aimed between the first row of hostages, and fired a single shot into Sal's chest. In a synchronized motion, another agent reached into the car and took control of John's shotgun. The other officers drew their weapons as the hostages screamed. John surrendered without a fight eyes frozen on his dead partner. Just like that, it was over. John's moment in the spotlight ended as fast as it began. Only a few hours earlier, he had felt invincible. Now he had nothing. The next several months passed in a blur. In October, John's lawyer told him that a studio was interested in the movie rights to his life story. He initially refused, but changed his mind after a visit from Liz. When she heard he turned down the money, she had to see him. She insisted he change his mind, asking to use the payout to fund her operation. If he really had robbed the bank for her, this was his chance to fulfill that promise. He agreed. On March 27, 1973, Liz had her first operation. John had finally given her what she wanted. The next month, he was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. John's robbery became the inspiration for the 1975 film, Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino. While he was still in prison during its release, he was able to convince the warden to play it for him and the other inmates. 
The movie portrayed a highly romanticized version of the heist, and John was initially put off by the inaccuracies. But when the fan mail started to come in, he changed his tune. Suddenly, he really was famous, and if he needed to adjust his attitude to fit the film, so be it. He started referring to himself as the dog, fully embracing the fictional version of himself that the world fell in love with. For good behavior, John was released after only six years. Unsatisfied with returning to a life of normalcy, he tried his best to capitalize on his fame. He flaunted his crime like a badge of honor, signing autographs and posing for photos. He even tried to get a job as a security guard at the very bank he'd robbed. His psychiatrist, Dr. Eugene Lowenkoff, said John became obsessed with the version of himself portrayed on screen. According to the doctor, when the movie came out, it became the essence of John's life. It made him out as the hero he always wanted to be. After his release, it was far easier for him to slip into the notoriety of his character than try and readjust to society as his normal self. He was the dog now, immortalized on film for all time. John Wadowitz led a truly unbelievable life, and at the center of it all was his relationship with Liz Eden. Without her, there would have been no robbery, no film, and no fame. But when taking it all into consideration, it's hard to tell how John truly felt about her. Whether he genuinely cared for her or just thought of her as a sexual obsession is impossible to know. What we can say for sure is that John put himself above all else. He did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and didn't care who he hurt along the way. Even after Sal's death, John had no regrets about what he did. He felt like he won. Liz got her surgery and he believed that justified everything that happened. When he was asked if he would have done anything different, John had a predictable answer. He claimed that even if he got a magical premonition the night before the robbery that revealed the future, he still would have gone through with it. John Wadowitz died in 2006 at the age of 60, back in his mother's house in New York. The dog had no regrets, no matter how many people got bitten. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on John Wadowitz, amongst the many sources we used, we found the 2013 documentary film The Dog by Alison Berg and Frank Caradron extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells. 
fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.